If you're working with students who use AAC to communicate, you will want to listen to this amazing episode with Susan Berkowitz. She is a speech language pathologist with a wealth of information, and she talks about how do we help students move beyond requesting shares with us some amazingly inspirational stories and talks about why we should never rearrange the symbols on a child's AAC system. The one thing that she shares with us, that one piece of advice I always ask people at the end of each episode, her answer is really, really poignant. So make sure that you stay tuned, listen to the entire episode and let's get started. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. All right. Thanks for joining us on episode 10 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. My name is Rose Griffin. I am here to help you learn strategies you can use in your therapy sessions tomorrow to help your students. Today, we have Susan Berkowitz. Thanks for joining us, Susan. It's so nice to have you on. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Nice to virtually meet you. I know that you are a seasoned speech therapist, uh, can, and I am as well. I think I've been doing this 20 years now, and I was reading your bio, and you've got me beat on that. So I'm excited to hear from you today, all your tips and strategies. Can you tell us how you became passionate about helping students with autism? Was there one moment that stands out or one client that had an impact on you over your career? Well, okay, two um, sort of different qu- questions because I actually became interested in students with autism when I was 10. Interestingly enough, there was a documentary on television about Bruno Bettelheim's school in Chicago. And I know his name is now a, a dirty word <laughs> in the field of autism, but um, he was about the only one around back in those days. And we're talking, you know, mid 60s. And, and I was just, I was fascinated by this documentary and these children. And it just got me really, really interested in, um, in working with these children. And so as I went through school, I knew that this was what I wanted to do. I wanted to work with these kids. And, and I, I was a psychology major. I also worked in, in special ed and I had the opportunity in college to start working with kids with autism. And I loved it. I've had so many. So I've been working with the students with autism for 47 years. Oh my gosh. That's <laughs> so awesome. just a few. Yes. Um, there have been so many who have stood out. In terms of AAC, I think the most spectacular, and I, you know, I always warn parents, especially that it, it never happens this way. But there was, there was a young man who was 16 when I met him and he was severely self-injurious. He'd done He's done neurological damage to his hand from biting his hand so much. And he had virtually no way to to communicate that was universally understandable. He had a host of of behaviors, including the self-injurious behavior and various acting out and, and aggressive behaviors. And he had some little pictures of his 10 most favorite reinforcers that he could ask for. And that was about it when I met him. And I did an augmentative communication assessment and discovered that he understood so much and had the potential to be able to express himself really well using pictures. And so I made him a communication book 
because we all know that schools take a while to get things through funding and they were willing to buy him a high-tech communication device, a costly one, but uh, but we knew it would take a while. And uh, so in the meantime, I gave him a communication book and it was a pod style book. Pod stands for Pragmatically Organized Dynamic Display. And it was 125 pages of pictures. Wow. Yes. So I walked into wow. his classroom. <laughs> that's <laughs> a lot was, of photos. Okay. That's a lot of pictures. And um, his teacher and his one-to-one aide just gave me the deer in the headlights book. <laughs> But they were good. And they listened to me explain how to use it. And I I did some training with them. And they were fabulous. And literally two weeks later, his teacher called me and I could hear her squealing and jumping up and down in the background. And she was so excited because the APE teacher hadn't shown up that day, which was evidently not unusual. And this was a big kid who really needed his exercise. And he started to pick his hand up and he started to bite his hand and he stopped and he looked down at the book and he found the page that had more to say. And he turned the pages and he found the people page and he found no APE teacher and he found the actions page and he pointed to run and he found the places page and he found baseball field and his aide took him out running on the baseball field and that's what he needed that's what he wanted to do and the fact that it stopped him from that self-injurious behavior that he had been doing for you know virtually 16 years Mm -hmm. that he had figured out that he could use the pictures to get what he wanted was just it's you know it's the thing you live for um, absolutely pathologist for that to happen oh I love that story oh my gosh I have goosebumps listening to that that's so amazing all of the speech pathologists in that school district buy in right to to using these you know bulky unwieldy pod communication. Well, that was so. One of my questions is: so were you? I was wondering. I had two questions about that story. It's absolutely amazing. And I always say because I'm a guest on a lot of podcasts. You know, like how do you get up in the morning, become a speech therapist, like do it every day? Sometimes it can be daunting, especially with what we're kind of dealing with this year. But it's stories like that that just keep you going. Like that's why we sat in graduate school and took our tests and did all the hours and did all the things because yeah. that's really amazing. And I, I love that so much. I guess I'm wondering in that story. Were you the outside? Were you working in that district as an evaluator on an evaluation team? And I'm curious, yeah. did that student still? Because I, I tend to work with older students. I'm curious, did that student still get speech therapy services? I'm just kind of curious about yes, that at that time. We did. Oh, we did. Um, okay. I I did not work in the district. My at the time I was in private practice. Um, I ran a private practice here in San Diego for the past 23 years, and a lot of what I did was as an outside consultant. So I did evaluations and staff training for school districts all over Southern California. So I would come in um, when asked to do an evaluation and then train staff and how to use communication systems and how to do AAC and how to implement it. Oh, that's amazing. And you know, that was one of the things. So today our main focus is AAC, but we have a lot of different people who listen to the podcast. So can you tell people exactly, you know, we talk in all these different terms, you know, can you tell everybody what AAC means exactly? Okay, so AAC stands for Alternative Augmentative Communication. So it's any mode of communication that either is an alternative to speech or augments a person's speech. So uh, for anybody who was completely non-speaking, it's any mode like sign language or use of pictures or any other kind of gesture or text 
that replaces speech that they don't have, or for somebody who has some speech, but not enough to meet all of their communication needs, or um, is unintelligible, like a lot of people with cerebral palsy, who are very dysarthric, who, or with children with apraxia, who are not inte- always intelligible, it can augment the speech that they have so that when they're not understood, it's a form of communication repair. Oh my gosh. Um, I love that. I hope you guys are taking notes. That's going to be in the show notes. That's a really, really amazing definition of AAC. And I know as a speech therapist and having done this 20 years and kind of specializing in working with students who benefit from AAC, I feel like, yes, I took a course in graduate school about AAC and that was fine. But the thing that's so hard about being a speech therapist and anybody who's working with users who use AAC is that it is ever changing. I can tell you just in my 20 years in the field, I remember when students Students had more dedicated devices. They believe it or not, you know, before iPads came out, there was a time before there was iPad. And, you know, the way that we dealt with customer service, I mean, there was better customer service, right? It was easier to talk to somebody from the actual company and we would mail to, you know, so and so would like, you know, drop their device and I'd have to mail it back. And I had a buddy at the company and, you know, I was at one with the people at shipping because I tend to work in programs for students with autism. So a lot of kids were using AAC. But I think if you're a speech therapist and you're listening and you don't have a whole lot of students who use AAC, I think, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, but you have to know what's in the device. You have to kind of get out there and see all the different options because if you don't... You have to to make really good friends with your manufacturer's representatives. You have to make really good... I was best buddies with all the guys in customer service from all the different companies. I went to school in the 70s. There was no AAC. When I wrote my thesis on using sign language with kids with autism, I had to spend the first half of my thesis just justifying that signing was a real language Mm -hmm. uh, because back then it it wasn't considered real language. Yeah. And that's where we were in the 60s and 70s. Research was just coming out with it as a viable mode of communication for kids with autism. And so I've seen us go through, you know, the devices that you had to program phonetically through the devices that were dedicated and weighed 10 pounds. Yes. And so, you know, the iPad has been a boon in many ways. It's been a curse in some ways because they're not appropriate for everybody. They don't everybody's needs. Mm-hmm. And yet, because they're in expensive school districts, that's what they're willing to buy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's been it's neat to talk to you because you, they're even just with me being in the field 20, almost 20 years, just seeing the differences are really, yeah, you just have to be on top of it. And so this, hopefully this podcast will help. So how do we get started with teaching children how to use AAC? What, be, what would be some pointers as far as getting started? The very first thing we have to remember is that children learn through modeling. You know, think about an infant and how many days, weeks, months, more than a year we spend giving them verbal input before they ever start talking back to us. That's a lot of hours of verbal input before they ever utter a word. And we tend to forget that there's all that modeling that goes in before anything comes out. There's a speech pathologist, Jane Corston, who estimated that if you give a child who uses AAC speech therapy twice a week, it would take 84 years to give them the same amount of input of modeling picture use for them to get 
that amount of modeling mm-hmm. before they would start using pictures. Right. And so we need to give them that modeling before they'll ever start. And so that aided input or aided language stimulation, which is us using the pictures while we're talking to them, mm-hmm. demonstrating how to use the pictures, pointing to the pictures simultaneously to us speaking, starting with pointing to one picture at a time, gradually increasing to two and then mm-hmm. three, the same way we do verbal language. Uh, we need to give them that input before start using. Um, unfortunately, our IEP system is geared towards what is the child going to do? And so we almost force them to fail by right. writing objectives that they're going to start using pictures when mm-hmm. really the first objective should be they're going to pay attention to somebody pointing to the pictures. <laughs> right. Well, and I think that would be a nice way to write a goal. I mean, we talk a lot about engagement and I mean, that's what's really hard. I think one of the things too, that's hard for people with modeling, what I've been really lucky where I work, I have an iPad, it has every student's you know app on it with their exact vocabulary. But then the classrooms also have other iPads that have the students' vocabulary. So I've been able to do trainings for paraprofessionals on students you know, iPads and just even saying like, you know, this is where you can find Word Finder if you're if you have a student who's kind of pretty proficient with AAC, but you want to look for a, a word that you're working on in a certain class or whatever it is. Um, a lot of times people say, oh, that word's not on there. I just programmed it on or, you know, whatever the case may be. But I think just kind of getting into the to device to know where things are to model, that can definitely be a barrier because not every work setting is going to have multiple no. iPads and things and like that. And it's difficult in a class, you know, two students have to go and another student has a PRC device that uses and some else has, you know, a Toby device with Snap Core or, you know, there are multiple systems and the paraprofessionals and the teacher never get enough time with their hands on the device to to get comfortable with where things are. And so they don't they can't model because right. they don't know what the words are themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always telling classrooms to take screenshots of every student's device. Mm-hmm. them out, make paper-based books for the staff to practice on. Um, yeah. They're great as backups because if technology fails all of the time. Right. You're going to have somebody whose device is in for repair or doesn't come charged or whatever. So you always need a backup paper system, but it's also the opportunity for the staff to have some time to get familiar with a device without taking it out of the child's hand. Right. We don't want to do that. I mean, that's. I remember back (laughs) in the day when I didn't have all the iPads, I would just sit outside so-and-so's room and I'd say, I have the iPad. Because now you can actually program somebody's device and you don't have to have the actual device. But a long time ago, I would, there was no other way to do those types of things. And so I would have to actually just take the student's device, a student who really, really needed that device. And I would sit right outside the room or stand really. I was not sitting. I was standing and I was, I was putting whatever needed to be in there. And I was saying, I have the device. If you need the device, I am right outside the door because I I knew that I could go in, but yeah. Programming it at midnight because it was the only time they divide to either program something in or to to look at it and get 
familiar with it and comfortable with it to use it. Right. Um, so things have changed. They've gotten a little bit better. <laughs> no, they but, have. Because I remember too, I would teach students. I'm really big on, you know, students being functional and independent and, you know, being able to take care of their iPad or their device. And a long time ago, the apps that we're using now did not automatically back up. I mean, now they automatically back up. So meaning that if we have, you know, new students in the class and we put new students' names on there, there will be this automatic backup in the cloud. But a long time ago, there wasn't that. So we had to actually manually go in and I would teach the students. We would, for some students that were able to, we would have a task analysis and like every Friday they would go through and they would actually, in essence, be backing up their own device, which I thought was a really cool kind of... Which is great. And and that's part the operational skills, which we often forget about when we're teaching augmentative communication use. We tend to focus on the communication part of it, which is great, but we forget about the operational use, the how to turn it on and off, the mm-hmm. how to clear the message window, the how to do the backup, those kinds of, of things that are really important, but tend to get lost along the way. Absolutely. I don't think we always analyze it like that, but I know different students where we've just had to search and get really creative. And now we have Etsy and all these great websites where people are making these things. But I remember I had one student who he didn't like to carry the device, but he, it was hard for him to tolerate wearing something. And he was he was a bigger student. So his mom and um, the, the classroom staff, we really had to kind of research what was going to work for the student. And we found something and it was something that like she could wash every night. And it you you just have to really be detectives. I remember back in the day when there weren't as many accessories, us kind of putting together like an old luggage, you know, strap mm-hmm. and bringing it into the clinic I worked at and just trying to make it very individualized. Yes. So we were kind of buying just... backpacks. And yes. Yeah. yeah. Got to, sometimes you have to think outside the box because exactly. a lot of our kids are very picky about what they'll touch or what they'll hold or what on their bodies or it gets very difficult for a lot of our kids with sensory issues to to even want to have something that they have to touch carry have on their person and so that gets to be um, a whole other unique piece of hat taking control of Um, taking ownership of their own device. Yes, I love that. And I have definitely had goals. I had a student once who kind of reminded me of the student you're talking about, but engaged in a lot of self-injurious behavior, actually came to this private clinic I worked at, had a beautiful device with real life pictures and it was amazing, but he wasn't functionally using it. And so the first year that I worked with this student, we worked on some receptive language. We worked on some requesting, following one-step directions. And a big part of it was just him also making sure that he would take his device from room to room if he was going places. And he really started to understand that that was his way to communicate. It was really cool to see that switch. We had some moments where kind of that story you shared um, where I remember one night there was something wrong with his device technology and he was actually crying because he was so upset that he wasn't able to use his device. And we had a backup, you know, the paper copies and all the things. But I was very touched because to me, it was very poignant. It made me feel like, oh, wow, he really understands. Here is this student who's 10 and has had no way to communicate. And now he does. And he understands that this is really powerful for him. And while I was sad for him, yeah, I was just like, oh my gosh, he gets it. And that was a cool moment. So one of the things I know that we always are not, you know, I I do too, like I definitely do. um, And it's just my background, but I do often start with requesting because students understand I do something, I get something, I press bubbles, I get bubbles, I want to take a walk, I press outside. Sometimes that's as far as we get. 
Yes. And sometimes that's as far as we get. So how do we move? What are some tips for moving beyond requesting? It's all about how you engage the student and the activities in which you engage the student. Bringing in commenting. I like it. I don't like it. You know, so those are the first two comments that also give the student a lot of power. No, I don't want it. I want to do something different. Yuck and, and, you know, good and bad. Those kinds of, of comments are also very powerful for students. Again, being able to have some control over their environment, what they participate in or don't participate in, the being able to tell when something is wrong. Um, so those, again, those powerful, motivating moments when they can say something other than wanting something, but that gives them some control over what happens to them. Also, finding out what they like to engage in and involving them in, in whatever it is. You know, we used to say not to engage students with autism in their, their little obsessive behaviors until, you know, Paula Kluth came out with Just Give Them the Whale. Um, I love Paula Kluth. She's so yes. good. And it's, yeah. it's very true. If you sit down and you bring a student in the things that they like, you can, you can comment, you can point out things about what they're doing or about the thing that they're involved in. You can talk about doing things with them, putting it on, you know, uh, on top of or under, or do you want the blue one or the red one, or which one should I put next? Or you can, and so you can build up those other parts of speech while you're engaged in that activity that keeps them um, interested, that keeps them engaged, that is all about them. I, a little while ago, I did an evaluation on a young man who was completely locked in except for his eyes. Um, he had facial expressions. He could smile. He could move his eyes. And that was, that was it. And his mom came in and she said, you know, I, I'm not really sure what you're going to do with him because there really isn't anything that motivates him except people. He likes people, but he can't do anything and they're just, you know, there, there kind of isn't anything. So, you know, there isn't even anything can, he can ask for. He can't eat. He can't participate in activities. I'm, I'm not sure what you're going to do. So even requesting was out. And I had the PRC rep there with an eye gaze system. And we programmed in Simon Says. Aww. And he could look at Simon Says. And we had a bunch of verbs. And we had silly things, jump up and down, wiggle, you know, dance. We just put a bunch of really goofy things on there. And he had the best time telling us to do all sorts of silly things. And we made absolute <laughs> fools of ourselves. Yeah. And he laughed. He had, and it was all about power. Wow. It was all about, he could control something right. that other people did that amused him. And it was wonderful. And none of it was requests. Right. It was, um, it was all about doing funny acts. Oh, I love that um, so much. How, how old was that? Do you mind me asking how old that student was? He was 14. Okay. And had he ever had a way to communicate prior to meeting no, you? No. Oh. 
Isn't that devastating? Yeah, that's so devastating. I had a student who was using an eye gaze device, which is just very low incidence. I think some speech therapists could probably work their whole career depending on where they work and maybe never meet somebody who that might be a good fit for. But I did extended school year and there was a girl who used eye gaze system and it was really interesting. She would have us play songs for her and she had us, um, she liked to have her Parapro put lip gloss on her and and all different kinds of things. But it was really uh, nice to be able to see her be able to communicate. So I love that story for him to be able to to feel empowered after so many years of not being able to communicate. That must have really been a moment for his yeah. mom too to see. Absolutely. Oh, she was amazed. She was crying. <laughs> oh, I'm I've, sure. done, I've done evaluations with girls with putting on makeup. Yes. And you talk about, you know, not just what color do you want, but oh, that one's pretty and that one's sparkly. And so right. again, you're getting comments, you're getting other functions going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you look really good in that one. Um, oh, I don't like that one. Let's take it off. Um, and so again, you're, you're modeling other kinds of communication functions beyond the requesting mm-hmm. and giggling girl stuff. Yeah, that's fun. I love that. We used to have, um, I worked at uh, ABA type program and we had, there were not a lot of girls there because autism does affect more boys than girls. And there, we had some girls and we did a girls group and we did things like, you know, paint our nail. It was okay. Those girls all wanted to do that. They obviously chose those types of things, but they did, they were into those types of things. And it was fun because you, you know, you don't always get to do things like that, but it was a really cool place. We could like go to the store, they could buy stuff. We did different themes. And yeah, I think that idea of modeling those different things. One thing that I found was helpful too, is that sometimes if you have students who are more quote unquote, have, you know, typical language, kind of listening to them, how do they interact with some of the items you may use with an AAC user to kind of get the language that, you know, that that the AAC users may actually use to comment. And sometimes I think it's hard for people to think outside of the box like that. So I think that's good. That's really good feedback. One of the things I wanted to talk about is is one of my pet peeves. And I, I know this comes up probably for a lot of people. Why should we never rearrange the symbols on a child's AAC system. Can you talk to us a, a little bit about that? Yeah. Stability of location of the symbols is very, very important. A lot of our kids learn through motor planning. And once a, they know where a symbol is, they need for it to be there all of the time. A lot of our kids, uh, particularly with autism, use their peripheral vision a lot. They're not really looking at the symbol. It's, it's kind of sideways. And they need to know that if, you know, more is up here in the right-hand corner, they don't even have to think about it. It's, it's just there and they reach and, and it's, it's there. If I have, you know, X amount of cognitive energy and I have to spend 80% of it just looking for where the symbol is because it moves each time, now I only have, you know, 20% of that cognitive energy to figure out what it is I want to say to formulate my language and get my message out. And I've just lost a lot of opportunity for for putting my language together and building my message. It's a matter of allocating your resources. And if you, you waste all of that cognitive energy having to find the symbol because it keeps moving around, now you don't have enough to actually do the communicating. To mm-hmm. use the language, um, and and it makes it harder for kids when they have to relearn where the symbol is every time they go to communicate. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's something that, and I have a, a very strong ABA background. It's something that a lot of the ABA folks do. They say, well, we have to make sure that they really know that that's what that symbol is. Mm-hmm. Well, no, we don't. <laughs> right. We know yeah, there's there's some argument in the BCBA. I'm a BCBA too, but there's some arguing of, you know, if you show a student a picture, are they matching? Is it a match? Is it a true label? Yeah. But yeah, I, 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 just, know, I don't get, I, I try to be more functional. one of the that. most ABA based schools in yes. the world. Sorry. Right. <laughs> we never did that. Yeah, no, and I like the idea of even just, I was actually trying to, um, I'm trying to spend less time on social media. I know you're probably (laughs) on Instagram and all the things when you have an online business. So I have this little folder and it says, you know, I really should only open these things, you know, once or twice a day. But I was going through my phone actually today. I was working at home today and I was going through my phone and putting all the little apps in the same little folder. But I think even if you just try to describe this, if you have teachers or other people that are kind of, you know, kind of giving you a hard time about motor plan and things like that is that you just think about yourself. Like, I don't know where things are on my phone now because now everything has been switched, but I'm able to take that time and to go through it. But that motor plan is just really ingrained in you and and you don't want it to be hard. Right. When you rent a car or you get a new car, you don't have to figure out where the gas pedal is, where the brake pedal is, where right. the windshield wipers are. They're all in the same spot for a reason. Exactly. Yes. I love that because, you know, and that's the thing too. Like, that's why I started this podcast is that, you know, everybody's going to have different opinions. And even though I'm an SLP and a BCBA, you know, majority of the time I am acting as the SLP on the team and I may meet people that don't always agree with how I'm doing something and everybody may approach something differently. But I think that if we use research. And then we talk about some of these real life examples like you're sharing. We obviously don't want our students to be struggling to find something. I know way back in the day, I'm not, this is like 20 years ago. You know, if we were going to do a news to you or something was different and we were using a static device like a tech speak, I don't know if you remember a tech speak, but we would make, you know what I'm talking about? So we would make like little board maker icons and it was just for the tech speak, 36 cells. Well, we would laminate it and then we would like take... This is so bad, but you know, this is 20 years ago. We would put in a new laminated card and all the icons were different because it was for science class. And you know, like all the... Now you would have some of the core words and things that the students mm-hmm. wanted to say for sure. And, and probably the fringe was different based on different subjects. But I just remember over time and probably just the field kind of advancing, thinking to myself, this just doesn't make sense. But I think there's still some people out there that are trying to input a bunch of new vocabulary because they're doing different units when really we universally could teach some things that might be good for a couple different classes. Do you, do you still see some people and doing things can, like that? And you can still do, you know, if you look at even some of the apps that are, are robust, core-based, great apps, they still have activity pages where the core words are in the same spot all of the time. Right. And the fringe words for the specific activity or topic are what changes. And that's fair. Right. That's legitimate. And so you can do that with a text speak as long as that basic core vocabulary doesn't change. And those are stable. And all you're doing is taking the specific fringe and putting that in the same spots where the specific fringe for the topic would go. And, you know, there's, there's still, there's still room in, in the field and some important things that you can do with a tech talk or a tech speak. Well, tech talk, tech speak. (laughs) Yeah. 
but but they're never somebody's sole communication system. So those devices are still around. Tech speaks. Oh, yeah. I'm really dating myself by saying that. Okay, I yeah, used to are. really they're okay. <laughs> and you could record your own voice on it, and we uh-huh. would try to always get the male staff if it was a male student yes. because yes. you know there's My like husband. not enough male staff, but there's a lot of male students. You know how that goes. There, there are, want, there are um, still guys floundering around group homes with my husband's voice. <laughs> okay. That's see. Oh my gosh. I knew we would get along because I'm just like, those are things we would do. You know, we would say like, can you, you know, like record this, this and this, but that was, that was kind of fun. Oh my gosh. It's fun to kind of go down this memory lane of AAC because it definitely has changed and it's cool to see kind of all the advances. It is. It's amazing. Had. It's fabulous how much it's changed. Um, it it, it's a young field still. But we have made such strides, particularly in 40 years. I'm yeah, yeah. Really pleased. That's awesome. So tell me, Susan, what is the most important piece of advice that you would want to pass along to another professional or parent about working with students with autism or students who use AAC? Everybody learns at their own rate. Don't compare your child to another child, one student to another student. They all learn at a different pace. Not everybody is like that kid who picked up the pod system in two weeks. I've had kids take two years or longer before something clicked, before they they got that power. Continue to provide that input. Continue to be consistent. Consistency is the biggest factor. Providing that input all the time, as much as you possibly can, is probably the best piece of advice I can give anybody. Be be consistent. I love that. That's good because I think we can always get overwhelmed from probably a parental perspective and from a speech therapy perspective when it feels like, especially for a student, potentially like we've kind of talked about some older students that don't have a way to communicate that sometimes we can feel like, oh my gosh, there's so much to do. The student needs to learn how to request and label this and say that and do this. Um, But I think that idea of being consistent, of modeling, I love the idea of teaching ownership of the device, whatever that means for that student carrying it or, you know, bring it to and fro and showing them and modeling that that's their communication. Just take it one step at a time. Right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's easy to get overwhelmed and just let all the background die away. Forget all the million and one things you're supposed to do. Right. And just keep building it one little piece at a time. Yes, I love that. So great. Thank you so much for joining us today. Gosh, I had a great time talking with you. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about you? A lot of the information you said today was going to be will be in the show notes, but where can people find you online? I have a website. It's susanberkowitz.net. Okay, so that's one place to find me. I have a book I've written, Make the Connection, a practical guide for parents and practitioners um, that is available on Amazon. Amazon. It is a very simple step-by-step guide for AAC implementation. I wrote it predominantly for parents, but also for speech pathologists who don't want to wade their way through another textbook. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's very easy to follow. I sell resources for AAC implementation on the Teachers Pay Teachers website. And I have a blog called Kids with a Z, K-I-D-Z, learnlanguage.blogspot.com. Wow. Busy, busy. I love it. Amazing. Everybody, make sure to check the show notes for resources we discussed. I hope that you enjoyed the show. And if you haven't done so already, make sure to hit subscribe and write a review. Remember to keep things fun and functional and we'll see you next time. 
Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.